Please be seated. Good evening to you. Isaiah chapter 64 tonight. Our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. In chapter 64, we come to that, and of course it follows chapter 63, where, as we studied last week, there was this very, very graphic picture provided to us of the judgment that Jesus is going to have to ultimately meet out upon the wicked at his second coming, not simply to judge the wicked, though the wicked are worthy of judgment, and... um, And I'm not any better than any wicked person except that I'm saved and I've put my faith in Christ, which is the single greatest thing that a human being can do to honor God. But it isn't just that God is going to judge the wicked, but that things will get so bad on the earth that God will have to judge the wicked in order to preserve the righteous. That if he did not judge wickedness and sin and bring it to an end then ultimately wickedness would snuff out righteousness. It would snuff out the righteous and the godly. And as Jesus said in one of his gospels concerning his return at his second coming, he said, when I return, will I find any faith? And that was the idea. Not that what kind of, you know, low-down, no-good Christians are going to be alive at the end of, the great tribulation and just prior to the second coming, it will be that all of the forces of the Antichrist and all of the devil and the Antichrist will be possessed by the devil himself. It will be an all-out onslaught to destroy good and to destroy the righteous. And so Jesus comes back in his second coming and he judges that that wickedness that is wanting to make extinct righteousness And then he establishes his thousand-year reign upon the earth, which is known as the kingdom age. And when we saw, as we saw in chapter 63, Isaiah, as he's receiving this prophecy from God of this judgment that is to come, he wasn't appalled by it. Um, He wasn't put off by it at all. Uh, though the description of it was very, very graphic. We remembered, he remembered as he listened to the, the God speaking of meeting out his judgment in order to um, sur- cause to survive the righteous. He remembered that God had had to do that in the past concerning the history of the Jewish people. That God had found it necessary to do that in order to secure their Exodus from the bondage of Egypt. We remember that Pharaoh at that particular point in time had ordered the death of all male Jewish boys. It was a, it was a thing to control the power of the Jews, but it was going to make them extinct. God came in and he judged Egypt to secure the release of his people. Later on, as the children of Israel were then approaching the promised land to begin the conquest of that promised land. And other nations came out to destroy the Jews, to wipe them out. Not to give them a bad day, not to, you know, be a thorn in their side a little bit. They were bent upon the utter destruction of the Jews. 
And God stepped in and he wiped out those nations and gave the Jews victory in those battles. And so God had been doing this all along, has been doing it all through history. So as he speaks about doing it at the end of the age, it shouldn't be something that's a front to our sensitivities. And Isaiah closed chapter 63 by pleading with God that God would exercise that same kind of righteous judgment in one day securing the Jews from the Babylonian captivity that he knew was yet to come upon the people. And he continues in this very same vein in chapter 64, and the idea that he says to the Lord concerning this judgment, he continues this whole thought of, God, bring it on. If it is going to require your judgment to protect the righteous from extinction at the hands of the wicked, then bring on the judgment. And that's what he's crying out to the Lord here for. He said, oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear the heavens when you come to mete out your judgment, that you would come down and the mountains might shake at your presence. He said, come down, enter into human history now in this judgment, and may your coming be like a great earthquake within the world, to, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. And he's talking about fire here in the sense of judgment. And just as the water is boiling in a pot that we would put upon the stove, and there it is making all of its churning uh, uh, motion and all. He says, do that to the mountains of the earth, whatever's necessary to bring on that judgment, to make your name known to your adversaries, that your, the nations may tremble at your presence. And so he said, come back in order to remind this whole world that it belongs to you, and you are the one that is deserving of its worship and its praise, not its rebellion and not its scorn. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. And again, he's remembering that when God gave the law to Moses there on Mount Sinai, that there was a great earthquake that was involved in it, a great shadow representing God's presence, a great cloud coming upon the mountain, and this awesome kind of uh, demonstration of God's power and His presence that caused even the Jews, even God's people to be in awe of the fact that God has arrived. God has come into our midst. And Isaiah is saying, do that, but not f- so that your people will have an awe related to that, but so that the whole world will recognize you for who you are. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for him, who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and uh, does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. And so Isaiah is saying, come back and bring this judgment with you. Again, stating what he's been stating all along. Do it for the sake of of the righteous, for the sake of the righteous who are waiting and trusting in you uh, to uh, keep faith and to keep hope and to keep truth and to keep holiness and these things alive. And so uh, Jesus will come back in order to do that. This phrase here is um, uh, a beautiful phrase here in, in the end of verse 4 concerning waiting for the Lord, speaking of God. Isaiah said, who acts for the one who waits for him. Uh, 
And this verse is a very, very important truth, I think, for each of us to realize when we are in those seasons. Not if we are in those seasons, but for when the time does come, because it comes to all of us. When we are having to wait on God for something, some fulfillment of His promise. We have the promise. We know this is the yea and amen of God. We know that this promise is going to have the final say in our life. But there is a period of time of waiting between the moment that we're in this situation and then the fulfillment of the promise. And this verse, section of that verse reminds us that when we're waiting, God is working. And that is so important to be reminded of, especially if you sit here tonight and you are waiting on God for something only He can do to rectify the situation that's going on in your life. And so often we think that as the hours turn into days and the days into weeks and sometimes even the weeks into months and it's not a fun place to be, is that we think time is being lost. We think that time is being wasted. God, this is a perfect waste of time. I'm not doing anything and you're not doing anything. Not true. You may not be doing anything because there's nothing that you can do. But the passage tells us that while we wait on Him, He is working. And to wait on God in faith... To say, I am waiting on you. God, I am not just waiting. I am not waiting this circumstance out. I'm not just killing time until this trial ends. I am actively waiting on you to work in this situation. That's not like regular waiting. To wait in faith is the most powerful thing that a person can do in that situation. Because God reminds us that when we wait by faith... That's not an idleness, that when we are waiting in faith upon Him, He is at work in that situation. And that gives us hope in the middle of those situations, to realize, no, I don't see anything happen. No, I'm powerless to make something happen, but the time isn't being lost. To realize in my spirit and in my mind that while it looks like nothing at the moment, God is working, and in just the right hour and just the right moment, he, the fulfillment of the promise will burst forth, and we will see how he was working all along. My devotional life uh, this last week, and I'm not like trying to impress you or anything, but if you're impressed, I can't help it. But I just finished the book of Esther. The amazing thing about the book of Esther is God is never mentioned in the book by name. And yet the whole book is filled with him. Everything that happens in the entire book is a a testimony to his providence. The great enemies coming against the Jews and the attempt once again to wipe them out in human history. No mention of God, no mention of God, no mention of God, no mention of God. And yet all of it is playing out. And once it's all said and done, everybody stands back and looks and says, only God could have done that. The providence of God. That God is ruling over all and overruling all for His purposes within our lives. And it's just a matter of the day coming in which we see that uh, before our very eyes, no longer walking by faith, but then seeing it there by sight. And so it's an important passage, 
And it really is really so important when we find ourselves in those seasons and all of us find ourselves in those seasons. But here's Isaiah in the latter half of verse 5 where he's calling for judgment upon the wicked for the preservation of righteousness and the righteous. And yet he expresses humility in all of this. He said, You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. And in these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. And the idea is that he begins to confess uh, is in this call for judgment, he confesses that even the righteous uh, are not perfect here. And so he's crying out to the Lord, Lord, we need you to judge. Lord, we're going to be wiped out if you don't judge. And I hope that you know as a Christian in this room tonight that there are vast segments and portions of the world tonight that Christians live in, that this is their reality tonight. This is their prayer tonight. This is what they, this is what they live in day in and day out. And so he's saying to God, God, I ask you to judge not because we as the righteous are perfect. Don't do it on on the basis of that, but do it, Lord, because of your mercy. He goes on and says, but we are all like an unclean thing. And he describes himself and, and just like all of the righteous. And he gives this beautiful description of even the best of us. And and as he declares himself and and the righteous within the nation, we're all like an unclean thing. And it's speaking probably about a leper. And a leper made anybody uh, unclean that a leper came in contact with. He says, we're not perfect. He said, I've, we've all lived lives in which we've defiled other people by just by virtue of coming into contact with them. We've been an unclean influence. He says, all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And he's talking, and, and he doesn't say, here he's talking about our best. He's not talking about our sins being as filthy rags, something that's unclean. He's saying our righteousnesses, the very best that we do, even as God's people, is like filthy rags. So often we do the right thing without under the wrong motive and so forth. I mean, there isn't anything that in my fallenness that I don't ultimately mar. And so anything that I ask for from God, even as Isaiah is asking for this judgment to come, I'm asking for him to do it not because I'm righteous or I'm better than anybody else, but for his own glory, for the sake of the righteous and on the basis of his own mercy. He said, we all fade as a leaf, speaking of our weakness and our frailty, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. In other words, he's confessing that apart from you, God, we could no more resist sin and becoming wicked ourselves apart from uh, any more than a leaf can resist the blowing of the wind. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay, and you are our potter. And all we are are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look that we are your people. And so here's this plea for mercy 
he's giving to God. God, we're a mess. The nation is a mess. Judah is a mess. Jerusalem is a mess. Indeed, please look. We are all your people. And, uh, and the idea is don't abandon us. Don't give up on us. Your holy cities are a wilderness. They're wiped out. Zion, uh, Jerusalem is a wilderness. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. And so, God, don't give up on us. Our only hope is in you. Our only hope is in your power and in your mercy. And then he declares in verse 12, uh, he said, Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? In other words, he's saying, God, I know that we deserve it. I know we deserve all the judgment that's coming, but please help us in the middle of the mess that things are in. And he's crying this prayer out as a righteous person. And then God answers Isaiah's prayer and his questions there in verse 12 and chapter 65. And chapter 65, the theme is the justness of God's coming judgment. And God lays a case for the justice of the judgment that he is going to bring. And he begins by talking about the disrespect that he has been shown, not by the pagan world or by the Gentile world, but by even his own people. This is God speaking. He said, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And he's talking about the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul speaks about this and applies it to the Jews and the Gentiles in Romans chapter 10. But here is God. And he has paid an enormous price in order to separate the Jewish people unto him, that they would be a special people unto him in all of the world. And he said, nobody cares about me. Nobody is, he said, in essence, he's saying that the Gentiles treat me better than my own people. I have more Gentiles worshiping me in spirit and truth. I have more Gentiles seeking me than are even seeking me in Judah. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And then he said, and this is part of the heartbreak that I mentioned this morning, this is God. This is why what comes out of these next couple of chapters that's so valuable about the chapters, there's, there's so much that's valuable. But the pinnacle is it has to do with us today is God's people. Is God is trying to get his people to stop and remember that there's another person involved in this relationship that we have with God. We live in this nutty, nutty place called the United States of America. Listen, I'm not looking to emigrate. I'm thankful. But spiritually... And morally, it's crazy. But there are worse places in the world. But this is probably one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to walk with God in all of the world as it relates to selfishness and self-centeredness and selfism. It is so nurtured within our education. It is so nurtured within our culture. We are the most important thing in the world. 
What we want is the only thing that matters. What we think is the only thing that matters. And then pretty soon, one of the indications that our Christianity is being conformed by the culture away from the Christianity that's described in the Bible is we begin to think about this relationship with God solely on the basis of what it has to do with me, how I feel about it, what I think about it, what I'm in the middle of, me, 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 I, 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 and it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that there is a living God, as I mentioned this morning, who loves and pities and and feels pleasure and has all of the emotions and more that we have that is engaged in this relationship. And his feelings can be hurt every bit as much as ours can, probably worse so. His spirit can be grieved. And so he begins to speak about this appalling treatment of his people toward him. And you have to remember that he's talking about this not from the vantage point of American culture, but from Middle Eastern culture and ancient Middle Eastern culture. He's talking about in this passage, we'll get to it in a moment, he's talking about how his children are treating him as a father. In this culture, we don't even blink at it anymore. We expect youth to rebel almost. We expect misbehavior and rebellion and this kind of thing. And so it's another one, another one, another one. Don't do it. I'm not condoning it. God bless you. I'm glad you're in the room tonight. Glad you're in the room here every Sunday night. But we just get used to it within the culture. And so we look and we see what sometimes youth or or teenagers will do in rebellion against adults. And it's like it's just a shrug. But to read this passage with the heart of an ancient Jew who knew God in a culture where if a child showed disrespect toward an adult, they were stoned to death. Because, and I'm not advocating it, by the way, is a return to, uh, you know, the law and the prophets. But it had something to speak to the adults in terms of now don't bring that same rebellion that's dealt with so fiercely and is such a danger to the family unit within the nation of Israel that I, that I allow this to happen so that the, a little leaven doesn't leaven the whole lump and then somehow forget that you are my child. And that you can treat me just any old way with any old kind of disrespect and any old kind of rebellion. And this is okay. And so in the ancient world, the esteem in a patriarchal society, the esteem in which a father was held within the family was immense. You would never ever think of dishonoring him. Even a lousy father, let alone a father like our heavenly father who's been nothing but good to us and never anything but gracious to us. And notice his description of his people, his people. The treatment of them toward him. He said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called uh, by my name. And he said, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. Imagine having a father hold his arms out 
to an approaching child. And the child ignores the father and goes on about its business. The father calls the child to himself. And in their rebellion, the child does not even heed or acknowledge the voice of the father, but goes on about his business. Imagine the pain. Imagine the incredible disrespect and humiliation of a father. If an earthly child did that to an earthly father, and how much more when a human being who claims to have a relationship with God, as the Jews claim to have, then treat God in that same way. It's a big thing for God to speak to us. It's a big thing to have his Bible. It's a big thing to have the gifts of word of wisdom and word of knowledge and prophecy operating within the church. It's a big thing to hear his still small voice within our hearts. It's a big thing to have God speak to us and call us to himself. It's a big thing for God to hold his arms out to his people publicly through his word. He talks about it all of the time. And then for a people to disregard his voice and disregard his heart and his place and what he longs to have out of the relationship. It is a, it is a, a it is, it's it just, who can put it into words? What's going on here? And what he's trying to communicate. And then he describes here as he talks about what he said to them. As he talks about his physically stretching his arms out to them. Here was their response. He said, who walk in a way that is not good. Their rebellion according to their own thoughts. They've exchanged my wisdom for their wisdom. Of people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. I mean the emotion that's in the passage who sacrifice in gardens idolatry and burn incense on altars of bricks, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs. What were the Jews doing? They were growing, going to graveyards in order to receive wisdom from dead spirits rather than from God, who eat swine's flesh. God says it's just they're involved in just this gross violation of my laws in a way that is way beyond just trying to get their way. This has gone into a level of disrespect toward me. My reputation is in, 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 in jeopardy related to all of this. Who eat swine flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. When people would come to them and speak to them about their sin, they would say, yeah, you're old-fashioned, you're just into knowing the Bible and loving God and obeying His Word. But if you went out and spent a night in the graves and listened to the spirits that are there, you'd discover a spirituality that makes what you have pale in comparison. And they honestly considered themselves to be spiritually greater for all of their sin and their rebellion. And he rebukes here their spiritual pride. And these, he said, are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. And so smoke in your nostrils is at best an irritant, isn't it? And smoke in your face all day long is, is absolutely makes life miserable. It's a funny thing about a fire, isn't it, sometimes, where you've got a fire burning or something, 
and you want to get away from the smoke. So have you ever been in a thing where no matter where you went, the smoke kind of followed you? You got, I mean, you're, you're doing some s'mores at a youth camp or some kind of a whatever, and the smoke is coming, and you get your s'more out, and you go to the other side of the fire, and then the smoke comes towards you there. It's kind of a plot, isn't it? I think the trilateralists are behind all of this. No, I don't really think that. But why do we try to get away from the smoke? It's an irritant. Want to get it, it makes life miserable. I'm losing my appetite for the s'more, whatever it might be. Here he is, he's, he, he's talking about the, the, these people, their sin, what they're doing is making life miserable for me. He said, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into your bosom your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. And therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. And so God's speaking of the fact that he will judge them. And thus says the Lord, and here he makes a promise to preserve a righteous remnant in the middle of his judgment. And that's important to realize. When God judges a nation, he judges a world, he judges a situation, God is able to differentiate between who is right and wrong in the situation, between the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes the world can become uh, so wicked or a neighborhood or a situation or a family or whatever it might be that a Christian can look or a nation and a Christian can look and say, what's the use in being righteous in the middle of all of this? I mean, what, what good is it doing? I mean, the world, the, the nation is, is going in the direction that it's going in. The whole situation is going away from God, the whole thing. What does it matter whether I walk with God or not? Well, we walk with God because he's deserving of that, not whether other people walk with God or not. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins in order for us to be saved and be forgiven as Jesus died on that cross and he was buried and he rose again on the third day. It doesn't matter if everybody or nobody walks with God. In the whole wide world, we walk with God because he's worthy of that. But sometimes we can think, what good does it do? But when God does pour out his judgment, he does take note and differentiate between the wicked, the righteous, and the unrighteous. And he knows how to separate between the two. And so it's important to be righteous, even in a season in human history where most of the people perhaps around you or in your situation or whatever part of the world we're in as Christians uh, is marked by unrighteousness. And thus says the Lord... As the new wine is found in the cluster. So here you've got this cluster of grapes. And the whole uh, uh, vineyard has been harvested. And somehow this cluster of grape, God's judgment coming through the nation. All of the, all of the, the grape clusters being taken away in judgment. And yet here's this one cluster that remains. And it rep- represents this righteous remnant. And one says, don't destroy it. For it is a bless there for a blessing is in it, and so God is able to differentiate between the righteous, the unrighteous. This represents the righteous remnant. For so I will do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah and heir of my mountains. Uh, my elect shall inherit it. My servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a 
uh, Sharon shall be a flock of, a fold of flocks and the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me, but, uh, you, uh, but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, speaking of a pagan god, uh, the god of fortune, and who furnish a drink offering uh, for many, which is uh, another pagan uh, god that referred to destiny. And so God, speaking of the fact that he's able to differentiate in all of this and, and an encouragement to the righteous. Yes, looks like you're being overwhelmed in Jerusalem. Looks like, you know, crime does pay. Looks like being righteous doesn't pay. But don't fall prey uh, to the temptation and join the apostasy. And then verse 12, Therefore um, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called to you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. So again, the disrespect toward God, the ignoring of God to their own peril, and it is always to our own peril to disregard the voice of God and the calling of God, and God speaks further about the judgment that would come upon them. He continues further in uh, this uh, judgment that he will bless the righteous and he will judge the wicked. Verse 13, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you, speaking of the wicked, shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. Again, the differentiation God is making here, and he's able to do that. And you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he who swears on the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. And then God heads into what is the ultimate uh, solution to the uh, rebellion of man, the ultimate solution to bringing an end, the ultimate judgment uh, that... Uh, um, ultimate solution to the end of this rebellion against God and all of the world, and that is the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And he speaks of it here in verse 17. For behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. And so God promises that very thing. Peter talks about it in his second epistle, chapter 3, about the fact that Uh, this day is going to come as a thief in the night and that the heavens are going to pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat and both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, all of it being dissolved uh, on fire. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. And he said, nevertheless, according to his promise, uh, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the ultimate future uh, for in, in God's judgment of sin that then gives way to ultimate and complete righteousness uh, within all of this new heavens and new earth. In, chap- in verse 18 of this chapter, 
He moves from the far end, which is the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, which follows the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign of Christ. And in verse 18, Isaiah describes uh, the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And he's been describing it throughout the book, and he continues it here. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And so in that kingdom age, there won't be any more weeping, no more crying, no more judgment going on uh, in Jerusalem. But uh, joy will take the place of weeping and sorrow. He said, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old. And so in the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, lifespans will uh, lengthen uh, during that period, kind of like it was at the beginning back in Genesis. It will lengthen if a person dies at the age of 100. It will because... Uh, be because it will be a tragedy that something like that happens. In other words, people are going to live much longer lives than they live today. But the sinner being 100 years old, if someone uh, someone dies at 100 years old as a sinner, they shall be accursed. And, and so the idea will be, boy, they died young. Somebody dies at 100 now, we think, wow, can't complain, really. But in the kingdom age, it will be something. They'll die at at a very young age, even at a hundred years old. And so the extended life spans. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed, be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And so it'll be a period of tremendous prosperity and safety in the world and certainly within Jerusalem. And then uh, he declares further in verse 24, it shall come to pass before they call. So before you even pray during that period, God said, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. And so it's a time in which as he's speaking of the judgment upon uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, God is at that particular point in time not answering the prayers of the unrighteous because of their sin. In the kingdom of age, there won't be any of that. God will not, God won't be forced to meet the, uh, hypocritical prayers of his people with silence. He will be able to answer prayer as quickly and as fully as his heart desires. And then there'll even be changes within the animal kingdom. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall, uh, feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And so this great peace that will mark the world will even extend into uh, the kingdom age. And then here we come now to uh, chapter 66, the final chapter of the book. And it begins with God's rebuke of the spiritual hypocrisy of his people. Hypocrisy, to be a hypocrite, the word as it was used in ancient times, 
it meant to wear a mask or to be an actor. And in the, in the old days on stage, now they make movies and who, wow, what they can do in terms of making someone's face up from one scene to another. And, then, and now they're able to not even have a human being in the movie. And they just create a new one, you know. Ah, labor, got to cut labor costs, right? You know. So uh, what's his name, the Iron Man guy? What's he getting, 22 million a movie now and all? I'll try and create him out of a little something and someone will pocket the 22 million. And then he'll sue them, so it won't happen. Anyway, enough about my problems here. I'm just trying to fix things for him. What's his name? What is it? Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. Sorry, how did I forget? So, um, actually, anyway. Uh, <laughs> So concerning acting, in the old days you would wear a mask, a happy mask and a sad mask, and that's what it was. And so you would wear a mask. And to be a hypocrite, as is spoken about in the Bible, is to wear a mask, to appear to be one thing outwardly, but then to be something entirely different inside. That's spiritual hypocrisy. And that's what was going on at this time and what God rebukes among his people. It wasn't like the Jews threw off religion. They didn't become agnostics and they didn't become atheists. They didn't go there. They liked the temple. They liked church. They liked the spiritual heritage. They liked the fact that their fathers had done this and their fathers before them had done this and their fathers before them had done this. And after all, a little religion never did anybody any harm and it will do the kids good to be raised in it as well too and all. And so they didn't throw all of it off. They liked aspects of it. But they would go and put on one face at the temple on, on Shabbat on Saturday And then the rest of the week, we already read about what they were doing. Entirely different person. Horrible, horrible. And so appearing to love God and offering these sacrifices and worshiping God and all of these things and lifting up, singing all of the Hillel Psalms and all the things that were going on, listening to the preaching of the rabbi and so forth and giving that appearance. But they couldn't wait to get out of the doors and go back to the graveyard and go back to... Uh, all of the different things that they were doing. And God wanted them to know that, that he recognized, he wasn't fooled by any of that, wasn't fooled by the hypocrisy, and so he confronted them with that. The Bible teaches, in terms of, of us as God's people in our relationship with him, that we are never to have a relationship that's marked by hypocrisy or by acting in any, any kind of, of, of a way. We are to be the same spiritual person all of the time. Every day of the week, in every situation that we're in. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean that we don't sin. Doesn't mean that we don't fall short and wish, man, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, and help me to do better next time. It doesn't mean that kind of thing. But there is that, there is this thing where I'm the same person anywhere you want to run into me in the world. You won't run into a different person in a, in a store in Jerusalem when you run into me than you ran into at the temple. And it's called integrity. And one of my favorite verses on integrity is in Psalm 78, 72, and it speaks about David's integrity with which he ruled the nation of Israel during the time of his reign. And it says there, so he, David, 
shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. And the word integrity there means the completeness of his heart, the integratedness of his heart, the wholeness of his heart and that was for God. And so our lives are not to be compartmentalized or to be fragmented where we're one thing over here and another thing over here and another thing over here, but that we, were all, we are always the same thing every place that we are. And God is going to rebuke them here for not having done them. This was the text of our passage here this morning, and so I certainly won't go into it with the depth with which we did this morning, but some of it certainly bears a little bit of repeating so those that weren't here can understand it. And the Lord begins his rebuke by saying, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In other words, I'm everywhere. Uh, the heavens is where my throne is. I, I fill the heavens as a, as, a, as a throne, and the earth is just something that I put my feet upon. And, and every king, every throne in the ancient world had a footstool, and it was an insignificant little nothing that the king put his feet upon in comparison uh, to the throne. And, and yet we look at the marvel that the world is, the creation that it is, and God says, uh, in essence related to it, that the heaven and the earth, I've created all of it and and um, and it is you know it, it, it's it, the earth in comparison to me is just a very small thing because of his omnipresence he's everywhere all at the same time and then he comes to speaking to them about the temple and their attitude toward the temple and he said where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest for all these things my hand is made and all, and all of these things uh, exist, says the Lord. Everything that went into the building of that temple came from God. He put the gold in the earth. He put the everything that went into every square inch of that temple. It came from God in his creation. And so when God called on them to then build the temple and they build it, God didn't owe them anything for the building of the temple. The temple didn't impress him. They weren't giving him anything special. They were merely giving to him in some refined form what all the time belonged to him. And so he reminds them of the fact. He said, in, in, in essence, he's saying, it isn't the building that impresses me. And that's what they were all thinking about. They were thinking that because the temple is holy, then everything that we do at the temple must be holy as a result. God must see it as holy. And God is, in essence, telling them that the temple is a wonderful thing. But the temple means nothing to me if it isn't coupled with sincere the sincere worship of my people being directed toward me. And not on one day of the week, but on seven days of the week, all throughout the week. And so he's uh, downplaying the significance of the temple because they were giving it a greater significance uh, than it ought to have had and thinking that it meant something to him more than the people. And as we talked about this morning, this is a wonderful building. Isn't this a wonderful building? It's a God has provided us with this building. We've been meeting in it for... For 15 years, 14, 15 years now, it's fabulous. But God, he, the building is great. It's wonderful. He's given it to us. He's provided it to us. But when he thinks about coming to church service on Sunday evening at Calvary Chapel in Modesto, he's not saying, I can't wait to get a look at that building one more time, to look at that, that gray concrete one more time, and the steel that makes up the walls, and that he doesn't care about any of that supremely. 
He's happy that we've got a building to meet in. All he cares about when he comes to this place is you. And that he can receive from us worship that is being directed to him in spirit and in truth. That's what he cares about. And so he speaks to them. And where he said earlier in verse 1, And where is the place of my rest? Well, it wasn't the temple anymore because their sin had ceased to allow it to be that for him. And so now he describes a different place where his rest can uh, lie upon. The description of the person who makes coming to the temple or coming to church a blessing for God. And he said, but on this one I will look on him who is poor. And it's speaking not of physical poverty, but it's speaking of spiritual poverty. The one who is poor in spirit. The one who is humble rather than proud. And humbled, I think, by the greatest source of humility that is available to any of us. Humbled by the greatness of God's grace in our life. Humbled by the greatness of his love. Humbled by the greatness of his goodness. And that recognition that I don't deserve a minute of this, much less a day of this, much less a week of this, much less the years that I've known it uninterrupted, year in and year out, and that this is going to stretch all the way into eternity for us. And a person who walks in this consistent um, being humbled by the fact that God would want a relationship with us. And then he says, not only on him who is poor, but also of a contrite spirit. And that speaks of brokenness, the person who is a, uh, a broken person and broken by their sin. And it speaks, as we saw this morning, of the fact that a, a broken person and a person's brokenness is measured and directly proportional to the time that elapses between the moment that we sin and the moment we recognize the sin, confess it, repent of it, and ask God for forgiveness. And it's that kind of a heart, a person that doesn't look and say, I'm going to allow sin to come into my life and camp here for long days and weeks and months and even for years. That's no place for God. That's no heart that God can find a place of rest in, but one who is quick. Again, the idea isn't that God says, I'm looking for a heart that's perfect. He knows he's not going to find that, not in any of us. But that when we become conscious of sin... We don't continue in it because we recognize that now our heart doesn't just belong to us, but that it is a home for God, the God that I love, the God that has saved me, and I want him at home in my heart. Not just merely for the blessings that he will bring into my heart, but because he's worthy of it, which then brings us to the third thing. And who trembles, he said, at my word. And this is the person who hasn't lost their awe concerning God's word. And here is the person who loves to learn and to know and to obey God's word for the simple reason that it's him that's talking. This is my God who is talking. This is my God who cares enough to speak to me. 
This is a God who, as I've read this chapter or that chapter in my quiet time throughout the years, I've never seen that before. How can you read the Bible dozens of times and never see that in the Bible? And then today I see it and I couldn't miss it to save my life. In this heart toward God, this awe of the fact that he speaks, that we have this book on our lap, that he has at great expense to himself and to his people introduced into human history so that we might know him in the way that we know know him, understand him in the way that we understand him. And this kind of person possesses this deep, deep, deep awe of God and respect for God and they view the opportunity the the uh, opportunity to obey him as as a privilege in order to express their respect and their appreciation and their love toward him this trembling at God's word that's a powerful thing i mean i have to ask myself and i think i i love God's word And I think I've loved it since 1980. And I know the power of it. And I know what it's done in my life. And yet I allow the passage, not in a spirit of condemnation, but I allow the passage to search me. Do I tremble at his word? Do I open it up? And even before I read a verse or a chapter, I say, God, because you are God, Because you are my heavenly Father, I submit to everything I am about to read before I even read it. Because that's the awe and the respect and the fear and the reverence that you are worthy of. It's a beautiful passage. And again, we think so often of this relationship. Very often, I'll speak to myself. I'm so consumed with my side of it. And to have somebody stop me, as God does here, and to remind me of the kind of heart that allows him to enter into it and then to bless that heart with the fullness of his presence and his blessings upon that life, which is what any father wants to do. The worst thing that you can do to a father who loves, and all of us as human fathers, we pale in comparison to the Lord, is to rob that father of the ability, the the joy and the blessing of blessing his children. And he longs to be able to do that. He never wants that spigot to be turned off. And so this is the heart that he looks at and says, that's the heart I can find rest in. And then he rebukes their hypocrisy as he talks about what they were here at the temple, but then what they were, you know, away from the temple. But then now the hypocrisy of their offerings at the temple, he speaks of these folks and he says, he who kills a bull is as as if he slays a man. God says, you offer these bulls, you offer these lambs, you offer these goats to me in accordance with the law of Moses. But if it isn't coupled with a love for me, if it isn't out of a relationship with me, it's just murder. You're just murdering animals. It doesn't please me in any way. 
He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, and he who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine blood. God says, you're doing all of these things that you're offering to me, all in accordance with the law of Moses, but your heart isn't in it. You don't care about it. You don't love me. You don't obey me. You don't respect me. And so all it is to me is like the slaying of a man, the breaking of a dog's neck, the offering of swine's blood. In other words, all these things that are prohibited by God in his word things that are an affront to him. He says, the sacrifices don't give me any pleasure given the way that they are. He says, they're an abomination to me. They're an affront to me. And he who burns incense as if he blesses an idol, and just as they have chosen their own ways and their own soul, delights in their abominations. And so God, he promises the righteous here now that he will judge all of this and bring it to an end. And so I will choose their delusions And bring their fears on them, because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not hear. Isn't that something? So we stop in a room like this. And God talks about the fact that when he called, no one answered. And when he spoke, they did not hear. And I can just read that verse And have a roll off on my back like water off the back of a duck. And yet it's God trying to communicate to his people, both then and now, what an awesome thing it is to have God speak to us, to be able to answer him when he does call and then speak to him when he speaks to us. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord as he speaks now of their mistreatment, not only how they were mistreating God, but then mistreating the righteous. He said, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, they hated the righteous. Imagine going to temple and doing all of these sacrifices, and they hated people that were serious in their walk with God. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, they shunned them, they persecuted them, and they declared, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but that uh, but they shall be ashamed. They were mocking the faith and mocking the desire to glorify God among the righteous. And God declared that he would judge it, the sound of the noise of the city, a voice from the temple the voice of the Lord who repays his enemies, who fully repays his enemies. And then God begins to close now by speaking of the rebirth ultimately of Israel and Jerusalem. He said, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. So imagine being a woman at nine months. You've got the baby you're going to deliver. It's going to be a boy and all. And then the next thing you know, The baby's in your arms. Suddenly, quickly, no labor was involved in it. You say, that's pretty cool. Can I patent this? (laughs) But but the idea is is that Jerusalem and and Israel is going to be restored instantly in a moment. No labor. When uh, Cyrus gave the decree at the end of the Babylonian captivity and he allowed them to return to the land, there was no labor. There was no war to retake the land. They didn't know hand-to-hand combat, nothing like that. It happened instantaneously. One day there was no decree, the next day there was a decree. And God, just as God declared would be the case. 
And he said, who has heard such a thing? And who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. And shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Again, a great encouragement that uh, Israel and Jerusalem would would once again uh, experience a rebirth. And then uh, that Israel... Jerusalem would once begin again be known for joy rather than the weeping it was known for at the time. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom and that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her joy. And then he goes on to speak of the fact that uh, Jerusalem is going to experience, and here we're looking down into the kingdom age now, and the, uh, it ha- this has a near fulfillment of them returning from Babylon back into the land. All of this was fulfilled in a near way, in a partial way, but the ultimate fulfillment is when Jerusalem and Israel lies as a ruin at the end of the great tribulation period. Jesus comes at his second coming, and he restores all of this and more to the city of Jerusalem. It'll happen in a moment, just like that birth that is described, and the joy here that will be there once again. And thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream and then you shall feed on her sides you shall be carried and be dandled on her knees as one uh, whom his mother comforts and so I shall comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem and when you see this your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves uh, to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouth, mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. And so before this wonderful uh, rebirth can occur within the city of Jerusalem, a judgment was required first as God allowed uh, the southern kingdom of Judah to go into captivity by the Babylonians and then ultimately in the far fulfillment, the necessity for uh, a judgment to come upon the Jews, upon the nation of Israel itself, in order to, uh, 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 for all of that to be judged, in order for this kingdom age to come forth at Jesus' second uh, coming. And at that time, for I know their works, God says in their thoughts, it shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pool and Lud, who draw the bow, and to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, and who have not heard my name nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Jesus will come in a second coming into Jerusalem. His glory will be set up there. Jews will spread out through, the word will then spread out through the entire world. The Gentile world will hear of him. They will want to come 
and see his glory as well. And then they shall bring all of your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of the nations on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And so here's this whole Gentile world coming to Jerusalem as well, and they're coming along uh, with the Jews and traveling with the Jews to Jerusalem to to see this uh, wonderful Jesus who has established his reign. And I will also take some of them, talking about some of the Jews for priests and Levites, says the Lord. There will be a temple rebuilt during the millennial of the kingdom age. More about that in the book of Ezekiel. And then God declares uh, the uh, end of all things, the final destiny for both the righteous and the wicked as he closes the book. For as uh, the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain, as he speaks now to the righteous. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, All flesh shall come to worship before me. And so the portion of the righteous one day is this uh, worshiping God unending in a new heavens and a new earth. And then concerning the final portion of the wicked, verse 24, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And so the wicked will end in a place of unending judgment as God describes it here. And it is a place where uh, the fire never goes out and where yet at the same time nothing is allowed to die. And this is known as the eternal lake of fire, uh, the final abode, the final judgment of the unrighteous and all who fail to put the blood of Christ between uh, a righteous God and their sin, which is the greatest sin that a person can ever commit. No one will ever end up in that eternal lake of fire on the basis of any of the sins that they have committed. The only sin, the one sin that can never be forgiven, the one sin that merits this kind of judgment, is a lifelong rejection of the salvation and the hope and the everlasting life that is found in Christ alone. To commit that sin is to wound the heart of God and it is to disrespect God on a level that all of the other sins in the world put together could never do. If you sit here tonight and you've never ever trusted in Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The book closes on this heavy note, but it's necessary for it to be so. You must put Christ between you and the judgment that your sin deserves, and he's the only one that can provide the forgiveness of sins. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service, and we'd love to pray with you in order to give your life to the Lord tonight and get on the right side of eternity and there's no reason for everyone not to be on the right side of eternity and so it's a heavy way to end the book but it is very very necessary the theme of the book of isaiah is holiness 
And the book ends with a very, very holy reminder that there is a God, and he calls himself the Holy One of Israel. That phrase for God is used 30 times in the book of, Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah and only nine other times in the rest of the Bible. It's an emphasis. There is a God who calls himself the Holy One of Israel and that he is coming back and that our eternal destiny is determined by our response to him in this life and most specifically, as I have said, based upon what we do with his son. So often you hear people um, uh, ask and they'll say something like, if God is so big and if God is so loving and if God is so powerful, then why doesn't he put an end to all of the sin and all of the war and all of the crime and all of the wrongdoing? And Isaiah's answer to that and the answer of the entire Bible to that question, and it's a good question, is that he will, and he is, but he will do it his way, and he will do it in his time. Let's stand together and we'll pray.